The question that I want to ask you that underlies the passage and the, uh, that we're looking at is what would it mean to be devoted to God? What would it mean to be devoted to God? I know for some of you here who are friends of people who are getting baptized or you're visiting us, you might think, well, actually, that's quite an alien concept to me. I don't really know what the answer to that question is, but intuitively, the idea does not appeal to me. And I want to look at a story um, in the life of the people of Israel and show you really this quite profound moment when the group of people, about the whole nation, returns to God, comes back to God, and demonstrates this picture of a whole community devoted to God. And so I want to read the passage for you. Uh, just to give you a bit of a context, uh, we're, we're reading as part of this whole narrative about a man called Samuel. He's a, a leader, uh, a, what's described as a judge, but really that means as a kind of both a spiritual and judicial leader in the life of the people of Israel. And we're going to begin, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, The people of Israel are calling out to God. It describes them as lamenting after the Lord. And probably the implication is that they are experiencing some kind of suffering. They are probably experiencing a kind of battle with the Philistines, the people local to them. And so they begin by calling out to God. But the the leader of the community, Samuel, says effectively, effectively, it's not enough just to kind of call out to God. Actually, he is calling you to give yourself heart and soul to him. So, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. From the the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of the Lord lamented, called out after the Lord. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth, that's one of the names of the local deity, uh, from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, kind of symbols of idolatrous worship, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. It's a kind of symbol, a mark of repentance. And fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So just as they gathered here to worship God and make this kind of great act of repentance, the Philistines, their enemies, hear about what's happening and they take it as an opportunity, think, well, they're vulnerable now. They're going to worship God. They haven't prepared for a battle. And so they go up in battle against the people of Israel. And and verse 8, And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. 
As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the day of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. So Israel experiences peace and flourishing, and they experience peace between their two enemies, the Amorites and the Philistines. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Kind of he rules over them and he speaks judgments towards them. And then, and then he would return to Ramah for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, as we open this passage, as we reflect on what you have to say to us, I pray, Lord, that you would speak loudly and clearly to us. I pray that you would come and reveal yourself to the folk here. I pray you would show us what it means to be a people who are devoted to you. I pray that you would speak to the hearts of all those who are here, including those who don't yet know you, that you would draw them into a devotion, a worship, and a love for you. Amen. Well, so I mentioned this is a moment really of collective repentance and returning to God. The whole of the nation of Israel at the time are gathered in this place, Mizpah. It's about seven kilometers north of Jerusalem. And so you can imagine they're all gathered together and they're crying out to God. They're confessing their sins. Samuel is pouring out the water, which is a kind of symbolic vision of repentance. He's repenting on behalf of the whole nation. And there's an intensity to this moment, a little bit like, you know, if you've been in a football crowd and you've seen thousands of people celebrating the victory of their team, maybe you've been in one of those crowds, you know what it's like? the group kind of multiplies the feeling. So if you felt passionate about your team, when everybody there together feels the same thing, it kind of multiplies it up. And then suddenly you get this incredible atmosphere of enthusiasm and celebration if, their team, if your team is winning. Or if you're on a protest and you're, maybe you felt passionate about whatever you were protesting about, but as you were with others who felt those same convictions, then it multiplies it. And suddenly you feel like you can be stronger and more uh, vociferous in your support of whatever you're protesting for. And so I think there's a sense of a kind of collective moment of intensity here as the whole nation returns to God. You can imagine the feeling of intensity and worship and repentance in this moment. And really, I want to challenge you in a way as we look at this passage, that if you're a Christian, this passage is showing us a little bit of what it looks like to be a community devoted to God to be a community devoted to God. Because that idea, a community devoted to God, is really what the church is. Some of you here, you're looking and think, what, what is the church? And you might think of church as a building. Actually, really, when you look at the New Testament, the church is a group of people, a group of people who are convinced that Jesus Christ was no mere man, but was God in the flesh, who dwelt amongst us, revealed to us who God was, and ultimately made a way back for us to come back to God. And as they do that, then God is calling all people into this community of people to recognize who he is and to become a distinct people. 
The New Testament describes the church as a holy nation. There's a certain sense in which the church should be a kind of distinct group of people, a people who are set apart, who are not following the ways of the people around them, and are kind of unashamed of that because they have been called by God, each one of them, and they recognize they have a distinctive identity. The Bible also goes on to describe them as a a royal priesthood, as people who have access to God. A priest is someone who dwells with God and has access to him. And actually it says all people who have come to believe in Christ have access to God, can pray to him, can know and enjoy his love. And this picture we have in this passage is really a picture of what it means to be a collective, a devoted community. And I want to give you a picture. I want to unpack this passage and say, what can we learn about what it means to be the people of God devoted to him? I suspect as I speak of this idea of devotion, there are some who just feels that whole ideal feels intense. Actually, I want to suggest to you that this idea of devoting yourself to God really is a very ordinary Christian life. Just as we watch these baptism candidates get baptized, and each one of them will be lowered into the water, it's a picture of they have died to their old life. It's a moment where they will publicly declare that they have surrendered themselves to God and that he is their Lord and Master, that they are devoted to him. So I want to show you what it means to devote yourself to God. But I suspect as I speak about this idea of devotion, there'll be some who are kind of in the middle, And what I mean by that is you believe in God, and maybe you would pray occasionally to God, but this idea of devoting yourself to God feels just really heavy and intense and a bit full-on. And actually, I want to suggest to you that right from the beginning, this story is challenging you if you're in that place. Because actually what it's saying is you can't just kind of pray every now and again to God, but God wants all of you. You see, at the beginning of this passage, it describes how it says, Uh, They were lamenting after the Lord. They're calling out to God. They're in pain and suffering. And some of you, maybe you're usually not a church girl, but there are moments in your life where you pray and you're in pain. You say, God, if you're there, help me. But Samuel says, no, 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 you need more than that. He goes on and says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, it's like a saying, almost saying, you can't just kind of call out to me when things are difficult. You can't just occasionally say, I need you when things are tough. Actually, I want all of you that I made you for a relationship with me, that you are made to enjoy me, to worship me, to obey me, to listen to me, that you are mine. That is the call that I would want every one of you to hear, whether you're part of the church or not here tonight, that God is calling to you and saying, I want all of you. So I want to unpack what that means. And I'll give you five, six, but they're quite short, I promise. Um, (laughs) Short uh, ideas that make up this idea of devotion to God. And the first one is wholehearted devotion. See, genuine devotion to God starts in the heart. In a devoted community, people actually love God, and that explains everything else about them. Do you see, as Samuel speaks in verse 3, when he says to them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. So he starts by saying, if you're returning to God with all your heart. And what he's speaking to there is the danger to which some would return to God, but really in a kind of half-hearted way. You know, they kind of go to God and say, yeah, we need you. The Philistines are attacking us. Can you help us? But they don't really want to return to God. And what he's describing, what he's speaking to is this idea of kind of superficial or fake devotion to God. 
And this is something that you see all the way through the Bible. And I think you will, some of you will have seen it in real life, in all sorts of ways, where people who, they articulate a devotion to God, they speak of a devotion to God with their lips, but the Bible then goes and talks about how their hearts are far from me. Jesus is speaking in, in the New Testament about uh, the religious teachers of the time, and he says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He's saying, look, they, they say all the right things, They go through the motions of religiosity, but actually they have no genuine devotion to me. They don't actually love me. They don't actually worship God. Why are they doing it? Well, maybe they're doing it because they want the approval of others. He speaks of those who pray long flowing prayers to be thought well of, or those who give generously, not because they want to um, actually be generous to God, but because they're doing it to get the approval of others. That's why Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand gives. Basically, give in secret, pray in secret, because there is such a danger of what I would describe as spiritual hypocrisy. Spiritual hypocrisy, where people say with their mouth that they love God, but actually they don't really worship him. And actually, some of you who are coming in here today who aren't Christians may well have observed that. You've been in a church and you just say, these people don't really believe what they're saying. They're saying all these things. They're they're singing the right song. They're singing these songs and they're they're making prayers, but they don't really mean it. And that may even put you off from the Christian faith. And if that is your place, position, I would almost, I'd want to agree with you and say Samuel agrees with you and say, actually, there is something really offensive about that kind of fake religiosity or fake Christianity, those who just go through the motions, but they don't really worship God. And Samuel is speaking to that problem. Instead, he's saying he wants people who are wholehearted to God. Notice he goes on to instruct them, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So what do I mean by wholehearted worshippers? Well, let's take it in two parts, whole and hearted. Whole is that idea that when you hear or encounter the God who made you, he wants all of you. In a sense, he is calling not for people who are kind of half in and half out, who people who are kind of saying, uh, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll take God and I'll take the idea that there's a God in the universe who loves me and cares for me. But the minute he would seek to make demands on my life, the minute he would start, start to speak about how I might, um, how I do my relationships or how I do my sex life or how I um, interact with people at work or whatever it is, the minute that God would make demands on my life, then I'm not interested. And actually, I see that all the time as a pastor. I see folk who are half in and half out. And the Bible says you can't do that. There's only one option, to give yourself wholeheartedly to him. To say, God, imagine your house is like a, so imagine your life is like a house. And each part of your, your life is like a, a, is a different room in the house. It's like God is saying, I want to come in and move into every room in the house. You can't keep any part of me. You can't go to work and leave your faith at the door. You have to be the same person in your private life as your public life the same follower of Christ as you are in church on Sunday and as you are in every other part of your life. And to do anything else is to lack integrity. So he's speaking of a kind of wholeheartedness, a a total commitment. But it also speaks of this idea of the heart. And what do we mean by the heart? Well, the heart in biblical terms really means your emotions, your desires, your inner person. And the Bible says basically that heart, that your desires, your emotions, must really be where your faith begins. 
You may have heard the, heard the idea of uh, God is calling for people to be holy. And you think, what does holiness mean? Maybe it means not doing certain things or, or doing certain other things. But in a sense, the Christian life, when you, if you think about it just as the externals, that misses something really fundamental. The beginning of the Christian life begins in the heart. It begins with a simple desire for God, a simple conviction that his love is better than life, that he is beautiful, that he is the most amazing reality at the center of the universe, that he made you, that you owe your life to him, that he is captivating, that Jesus Christ was the most worthy, perfect person who ever lived. And so you actually want to worship him. When you come here on a Sunday, you actually want to sing about him. That explains everything. That's why then Christians will go on to make all sorts of sacrifices, because they actually love him. It says if you don't love him, if you don't feel any desire for God, well, then you might as well, the rest of it, don't worry about the rest of it. Just start with that. Do you love God? If you're going to be a devoted people to God, it starts with the question, do you actually love him? That's the first thing. Second thing, exclusive worship. In a devoted community, people are, the people of God are not entertaining other gods, but have rejected the idols of the culture around them. Did you notice at the beginning of the passage, when Samuel is speaking to the people, he says, if you're returning to the Lord, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. And later on, the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And what he's describing is the way that these people, they were saying they worshipped God with their lips, but really they were in private or kind of around in their lives, they were bowing down to other gods. In this case, Baal and Ashtaroth, the Canaanite gods of the people around them. And what he's saying is this, really simply, if you are to worship me, you are to have no other gods. You are not to worship anything else, but you are to worship me alone. And you might think, well, okay, that's, I could do that one because I don't worship anything. I don't worship any idols. What are you, no, I've got no Baals, no Ashtaroths. So there's a kind of Asherim, a pole given over to Ashtaroth. I don't have one of those. There's no problem here. But really, this idea of idolatry is something that's much more pervasive. Because really what it speaks to is the fact that all human beings are worshippers. All human beings are worshippers. And what I meant by this is you were made to worship God, whether you realise it or not that God was intended to be the most valuable reality at the centre of your life. That he was to be the source of the meaning, the satisfaction, and even the love that your heart longs for. We all long to experience love. The Bible says that the reason you long to experience love is because you are made by God who loves you. That he was to be the source of what your heart longs for. But instead, we build our lives around many gods, which are actually no gods at all. And they don't often have divine names nowadays. They're much more tangible things like your career, your desire for wealth, the quest for love, the desire for a family. Sometimes very good things in and of themselves. But what happens is as we remove God from the picture, we take these created things and make them like gods in our lives. And what I mean by that is we look to them to give us the ultimate meaning for our life. And so we construct our whole lives around these things. Some folk in this city, they have built their lives around their career. Everything they're living for is for career success. Or perhaps it's the pursuit of love. I remember speaking to one young woman who, who, who was longing for a relationship. who said, basically, I can't think 
about life without, if I wasn't in a relationship, if I didn't find someone who loves me, if I don't have this, my life will be over. What's happened is they, you build your life around this thing. You make it the ultimate object of your life, and it becomes like a god to you. You devote your time and your money, and you make all sorts of sacrifices, just like one might make a sacrifice to a god. You make it ultimate. You say, I can't live without it. It says all people are doing this, whether they realize it or not, whether you're a secular person, everyone has a north star. Everyone has a reason for living, and everyone has something that gives their life meaning, that is the kind of validation of their life. And whether it's uh, your money, a pursuit of money, or your career, or love, the problem is, if you worship that thing, it will control you. The desire for that thing will then end up controlling you. Uh, One writer put it like this, whatever controls us is our Lord, The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people she wants to please. We do not control ourselves, but are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And actually, by the way, you should know that this idea of idolatry, of worshipping these created things, is not something that you do just if you have no God in your life. Actually, even if you're a Christian, you may find yourself doing this. You may find yourself taking things, good things, And not just enjoying them as a gift from God, but making them the ultimate focus of your life. One writer said this about idols. The idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination. Anything you seek to give you only what God can give. If you're still not convinced, think about the things that that keep you awake at night. What are the things that that cause your heart to fear, that you worry about. Often the things we worry about, the things that keep us up at night, the things that cause our nightmares or our daydream or keep our, keep our focus as our daydreams are the things that we are idolizing. And this passage says these idols do not worship them. Instead, worship the living God. Effectively, what he's saying is these idols are nothing compared to the God who made you. Even in this passage... Um, You'll see in verse 10, when uh, Samuel um, is praised to God for the Israelites, remember they're being attacked by the Philistines, how does God intervene? Well, it's interesting, he thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines. Basically, he thunders, and basically like a great storm, and and the Philistines get all a bit, you know, overwhelmed or whatever, and and they end up being defeated by the Israelites. What's fascinating is that Baal, one of the gods that these people were worshipping, was actually known as the god of thunder. So basically, God is saying, I am stronger than the very God who you've come to worship. I am the God who made you. He's saying, effectively, all the things that you might be tempted to worship and to put your um, focus on and to make the ultimate purpose of your life, whether it's getting a certain place in your career or um, achieving some status in life or finding someone to love you, whatever it is, none of these things are worthy of your worship when compared to the God who made you. Your idols are impermanent. They they come and go. You You might focus all your life on building your career and achieving some vision of success, and then it's ripped away from you as you lose your job or a recession comes or, or something comes to take, snatch away from you the success that you have built your life towards. But of course, the living God is permanent. He created you. He's always existed and always will. Actually, he has a permanent um. Not just a permanent existence, 
but also gives a permanent, lasting satisfaction. We pursue these things because they, we think they will satisfy us, but they, of course, just give us a kind of fleeting satisfaction. We get the thing that we were looking for. We build our life towards this thing, whatever it is. We find it, and then we find ourselves still dissatisfied. But the living God has a different answer to the longing for satisfaction in the human heart. He says, actually, I have a love. I have a love for you that you are made for, and that love that you continue to experience even in your worst moments, because the love that I have for you is not dependent on what you've done, but dependent on the fact that Christ died for you 2,000 years ago, and that love continues to speak to the deepest longing of your heart, the longing for, to know that you are worth something. But it says, actually, yeah, you are worth something so much that the living God was willing to die for you. It says it's the, lo- it's the deep longing to, for um, acceptance within the human heart. Many of us, we long to be accepted by other people. Actually, it's, the reason we long for that in some way is because we were made to receive the acceptance of the God who made us. Your idols are insignificant. You might spend your whole life idolizing and living for the approval of other people, for example, worrying about what people think of you. But when you compare those people, they're just flesh and bones compared to the God who made you. They're nothing compared to the one who spoke the universe into being, who created every star and galaxy, every intricate, beautiful thing in this world. They're nothing compared to the God who made the universe. So if you're seriously to consider devoting yourself to God, you must reject idolatry. Say, only the Lord is worthy of your worship. Thirdly, willingness to repent. Willingness to repent. I said this is this great moment of public repentance, of, of, of confessing their sin, of coming before the God and saying, God, we have re- re- um, rebelled against you. Forgive us, right? And what you've got to know is that this kind of sense of repentance really is very unusual in the world today because it involves two things. It involves acknowledging your sin, acknowledging the very worst parts of your life, the very worst things you've done. And then it involves turning around from those things. Repentance means to turn around, right? And, what, and you'll hear this when you hear the baptism testimonies. The guys today are going to share very honestly about some of the mess of their lives before they became Christians. And actually, repentance continues even as a Christian, continues and continues and continues, a life of willingness to acknowledge your sin, and a willingness to turn around to God, to say, I've made a mistake, I've messed things up, I need your forgiveness, God. And that is so unusual. That is so unusual. Why? Why can they come to God like this and declare their sins so openly? Why can the baptism candidates be so honest about the mess in their lives? The answer is because they have found a grace in God that allows them to acknowledge their sin and allows them to come back to God even in their deepest, darkest mess. What do I mean by grace? It's so important we named our church Grace London, so you've got to hear this. Grace means the unmerited kindness of God, the unmerited favour of God, the mercy of God. It says, all of you deserve a life away from God. You've rebelled against him. You've ignored him. You've ignored the very central purpose of your life. And yet, the living God was willing to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, to give his life on the cross, to be humiliated naked on a tree, to die a gruesome and humiliating death for your sake, to pay the penalty that you, did, that you should have paid 
to ultimately experience judgment from God the Father, and so that you can be forgiven. That is the central idea at the heart of the Christian faith, that you can be forgiven, that there is a way back to God, however messy your life has become. God is calling to you and saying, you are mine, come back to me. And that idea of grace, that idea of unmerited favor, of complete forgiveness, that is the best news in the world. I became a Christian in 2008, I think 15 years, about this time, uh, November. And 15 years later, the idea of the grace of God continues to overwhelm me with joy. It never gets old, because I'm still a sinner. I still mess up every day. I still hurt the people I love. I still ignore God on a regular basis. And yet, he loves me. He forgives me. And that is the central truth that I would wish every human being in this room would know to the depths of their soul so that you can be honest about your sin. You can repent and turn around. And that is a picture. That is part of what it means to be devoted to God. Fourthly, learning to trust God. In a devoted community, the people of God know where to run to when they're in trouble. They've learned to trust God even in the hardest times. See, you've noticed in this passage, they, uh, they experience this moment where the Philistines come and they attack them. And where, what happens when the Philistines come to attack them? What happens? They go to Samuel and say, Samuel, will you pray for us? Samuel, will you pray to God for us? And that's actually really significant. They say, Samuel takes a, n- a nursing lamb, offers it a burnt offering to the Lord, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. When they are in their greatest moment of weakness and suffering, and perhaps we might call it anxiety, right? Because they're worried, they're fearful, because they might literally lose their lives. Where will they run? They run to the living God. And why that matters is because to be devoted to God means to recognize and trust that you have a Father in heaven who cares for you. This makes all the difference in life because we know we can't control the future. We know that life has all sorts of disappointments and, th- and thing, bad things may happen to you. As you grow up, and many of you in your early 20s, I'm afraid to say bad things almost certainly will happen to you at various points. You will lose ones you love. You will go through suffering, right? So we all are faced with the problem of future suffering. And therefore, we feel anxious because we know we can't control the future and we don't know what lurks around the corner. So what will you do in, re- in view of your inability to control the future And the Bible has a remarkable answer. It's that you will run to the living God who cares for you. That actually in your anxiety, in your fear about the future, the question is not, what will you do? The question is, where will you run? You'll run to the God who cares for you. And this makes all the difference. It's why Christians can walk with a peace. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of the hardest moments of their lives, they have a peace Why? Because they believe with their deepest parts of the soul that they have a father who loves them, who cares for them. Jesus speaks of uh, uh, lilies of the field. And he says, look, the lilies of the field, they they are worried about what they will wear because your heavenly father knows what they need. How much more does your heavenly father know what you need? He cares for you. This idea of a father who cares for you changes how you view suffering means you don't need to distract yourself. Modern people, all the only answer to the problem of suffering is to try and avoid it and distract ourselves from it and pretend it's not there. But the Christian can look suffering in the face and say, actually, I'm going to stare you down, so to speak, because I have a father who cares for me, who loves me, and actually promises, by the way, that he is in control in the midst of suffering. 
because he views you as a child who he cares for. That's why, um, I can't remember the atheist thinker now, the name of his name, but he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I think it's Matt Haig. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Because he's saying, I think what he's speaking of is that idea of missing the fact that you have a father who cares for you. So those who devote themselves to God do it because they trust him, because they know that he loves them and they're willing to put their hand in his and say, I will go your way. That is true of all the baptism candidates. The reason why they're willing to surrender their life to God is because they have found a God who cares for them and they trust him and they're willing to walk with him. Fifthly, nearly there, thanksgiving. A devoted community is not marked by a kind of slave-like drudgery, but devoted to God out of a deep sense of gratitude and joy. When I hear speak of devotion to God, I think some of you have a picture in your mind of a person going, I'm devoted to God, and I'll just kind of grin and bear it, and it's not very fun, but I'm devoted to God. And maybe even I'm better than other people who aren't devoted to God. And it doesn't, and it doesn't look very pleasant, right? It doesn't look very fun. <laughs> devoted to God. It just seems very serious. What about if actually the devotion that you have to God comes out of a sense of genuine gratitude? Notice how Samuel sets up an Ebenezer. It's a a kind of stone, a pile of stones, basically, um, that that basically says, it's a a kind of monument that says, God helped us. It's like to remind them all. So they might look back in this moment and say, we remember that God helped us. He he rescued us from the Philistines. We, We didn't die because he intervened and saved us. And that idea of thanksgiving is at the center of the Christian faith. Because we look at our lives and we say, we have an incredible amount of things to be thankful for. We think of uh, uh, the fact that, well, you've got this grace that I mentioned earlier. The idea that God continues to love you even in your mess. Even though you do all the things, you sin against him and you sin against other people. He continues to love you. We thank him for his fatherly care. We thank him for the fact that he is constant. That he is the same today as he was yesterday. You know, you're not like that, are you? One day you love the person, the next day you feel frustrated towards them. One day you're a great friend, the next day you ignore your friend. But actually, we believe the living God is the same every day. He's patient. He's full of grace. He pursues you even when you've ignored him and rejected him. The love that he continues to pour out in your life. The way we see him at work in our lives. In fact, you'll hear some of that in the testimonies. It is that sense of watching God at work and receiving this incredible love that enables us to continue to walk in thanksgiving. That our lives are marked by this overflowing sense of thankfulness. That's why we worship. That's why you even see what Samuel sets up an altar to God at the end of this passage out of a kind of sense of thanksgiving. And by the way, it's a choice. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul tells Christians to give thanks in all circumstances. So it's not just something that overflows out of you. It's a choice you make every day, even when things are hard. All circumstances doesn't just mean when things are good. All circumstances. So it's actually a great antidote to the kind of negativity and the grumbling and the self-pity that so often emerges in our hearts is actually a posture of gratitude. It's saying to God, I thank you that you are good even when things feel really hard. That is one of the answers, one of the core foundation stones of the idea of contentment in suffering that Christians experience. So if, you feel, if devotion feels hard, are you giving thanks to God? Is your heart full of thanksgiving? The final point I want to give you is really simple. It's collective devotion. 
A devoted community know they need each other and seek to encourage each other in their shared devotion. See, all of this story happens together. We've been working, those of you who are part of the church, you'll know we've been working through this series of individual devotion. Individuals like Samson and Samuel who have devoted themselves to God. But it's not, never just individual. Devotion to God is something we do together. That's what it means to be a church, to be a community, to encourage one another in our devotion to God. It means we love each other, it means we serve each other, it means we do all sorts of things to help each other, but... But one part of that means that we want to help each other see the beauty of who God is and to remind each other, encouraging each other towards God every day. That's why we gather on Sundays. That's why we make a priority of a church community because we kind of know that we can't do this on our own. That without this brothers and sisters around us reminding us of the goodness of God, reminding us of this love that I've spoken about, we will constantly be distracted by other things and we'll give up. You cannot devote yourself to God unless you do it with other people. It sounds bizarre. In our individualistic age, we think we can do it on our own. The Bible says, no, you're much weaker than you think you are, and you need other people. And by the way, that means you do it for others as well. You don't just receive, you give, you share, you encourage, you exhort, you say, you're, doing, you're making a terrible decision. Don't do that. That's okay. That's part of, part of being in a community. And the final thing I would say is, God is looking for Samuels. When I look at this passage, and the thing I felt as I was reading this and reflecting on it is, look at the role that Samuel has to play here. I'm speaking here if you're a Christian. God is looking for men and women who would take a step forward and say, I see the state of the church. I see that so often the church is is drawn towards um, getting the approval of society and therefore is drawn towards compromise. I see sometimes the church is, is kind of just becoming irrelevant in our culture. And actually God is calling for Samuel's. God is calling for men and women who will step forward and say, here I am. I want to be used by you, God, to strengthen the church, to call her back to himself. Some of you might feel that calling. You might be grieved even by the state of the church sometimes. And I want to say, if you feel that, don't, don't ignore that feeling. That may well be from God. He's drawing you to give yourself for his purposes, for strengthening his church. And so as I close, I want to give you a moment really to respond to what God's saying. There's three types of responses. One is those who hear this and say, I hear this vision of devotion. I'm a Christian, but I want to devote myself to God. I want to be one who is heart and soul dedicated to God. I want to actually love him. God, would you come and change my heart? Would you make me someone who actually loves you, who worships you, who is grateful, who is full of devotion, who's committed to your family? If you're a Christian, I want to ask you whether you consider consecrating yourself again, saying, God, I want every part of who you are. Would you come and take over my heart? Would we be people marked by devotion, thanksgiving, and wholehearted worship? That's for Christians. If you're not a Christian, I wonder if you would consider whether or not Christ is calling you. And you'll know this because you'll feel it in your heart in this moment and perhaps in other moments tonight. You'll feel something of God calling you to himself. You're saying, no, this, I actually think this might be true. I'm actually interested in whether this love that is better than life, that's how the Bible describes the love of God, is real. And we'd love to walk with you and help you explore the Christian faith if that's where you're at. But for now, you might just want to say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you show me more of who you are? And then finally, there might be some of you who are like Samuel, who hear the call to be used by God to strengthen his church. 
And so you would say, God, would you use me?